Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode one of Pith and Moment, a podcast for all things Shakespeare. My name's Kyle Downing. I'm a Shakespeare coach in New York City, and my special guest today is a former professor of mine from the University of Houston, Sarah Becker. Sarah, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for inviting me on. Of course. It's going to be awesome. Um, I just <laughs> wanted to start off by letting you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your work. Sure. Um, I work as a voice and text person um, and a teacher and sometimes a director. This summer I worked at Illinois Shakespeare Festival, and I'm glad you invited me on because this spring I'm vocal coaching Hamlet at Oregon Shakespeare, and you said you wanted to talk about Hamlet. That's awesome. I did not know that little uh, tidbit of information. That's super exciting. Yeah, I'm really excited about it because uh, – I think for a lot of people, it's the Shakespeare play, and I've only ever worked on it in little tiny pieces and seen it and listened to it, so I've never had the luxury of 11 weeks of being in a rehearsal hall with great people taking a a deep dive. So I guess in the on the subject of that deep dive, what what do you think are the biggest challenges of working with Hamlet? I think the biggest challenges of working with Hamlet is that there's this idea that it's an important play and that everyone should like it and people should get it right because it's very serious and important and intellectual. Um, I think you just sort of inherit, you inherit a lot of um, kind of cultural weight when you talk about Hamlet. And really, you know, if you're a good actor and you're doing your good actor work, You come to every play with a list of questions. And so I feel like the first step to working on Hamlet is kind of de, uh, you know, taking away the the mugs and the T-shirts and the gift shop-ness around it and just going, all right, what's going on here? You know, it's kind of cool. I I read something similar that Adrian Lester said about when he played Hamlet and he worked with the play, and it was – it was just about him, like, looking at all of the, his idols that had played it over the years and mm-hmm. then, like, trying to pick things he liked and recreate it. But then what happened when he got into rehearsal was that there's so much to tackle that he said he just had to start from scratch and, and work as him and, and that that's what made his performance successful overall is that he just worked from scratch. Yeah, you know, it was funny. Um, I was listening to Matt Schwader give a talk to some APT people when they were doing it at American Players Theater. And he said, Hamlet, where were you guys when I was working on Bertram and All's Well That Ends Well? (laughs) (laughs) Well, on the subject of working more on Hamlet, um, I guess I just wanted to get your opinion on uh, a couple of key scenes in the play. And, you know, because obviously it is such a monumental play that we all we all look at particular scenes in the play as like maybe turning points for Hamlet um and I, I guess I wanted to start with the ghost of Hamlet um you know when his sure. father comes and I in. should preface all this by saying I'm not in the rehearsal hall with it yet I'm just starting my work on it um so I I'm I'm trying to start rehearsal with the most sophisticated questions as possible. So <laughs> some of the answers to your questions might be, I know, right? That's hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess um, what, I mean, obviously we have that monologue at the end of the scene, right? Mm-hmm. Where after um, after Hamlet's dad, like, you know, appears as a ghost and, and says all these things about how he's been tortured in the, in this world between heaven and earth. Um, mm-hmm. wh- 
what what do you think I guess is Hamlet's turning point in the scene? Like where where do you think he finally stops believing it's a devil and maybe starts believing it's his father? You know, I think that it takes a while. I mean, that's why he ends up doing that play um, for Claudius is because he's still he's still not sure. And that to me is really human. Everybody says, oh, Hamlet's problem is that he's indecisive. If someone told me to kill someone, it would take me some time. <laughs> and that doesn't make me indecisive. I think that makes me human. Um, so I don't think he has a turning point where he's like, all right. I'm uh, I'm on action. I think he's still in figuring it out. I think something really um, interesting happens to him when he's off on the boat with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, because then when he comes back and he's with the grave digger, he seems kind of different than uh, than before. Sure, um, sure. I think he has a lot of <laughs> I think he has a series of turning points in the play um, and seeing. Yeah. Seeing his dad as a ghost is is just one of them. I was reading a really interesting article where they said um, uh, Hamlet's making his dad into be this uh, this idol, this amazing man. It's kind of interesting because if you look at the history of it, it seems like Hamlet's dad was away for a lot of his childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's that about? It's also interesting to think that, like, I mean, this is one of very few roles in the canon that we have evidence that Shakespeare played. And mm-hmm. is there, like, I, I guess in theory, is there a possibility that Shakespeare knew he was going to play this role and, and wrote s- certain things around himself as a person or as a former actor, I guess? I don't know. It's interesting to think, d- did Shakespeare think he was a good actor or a bad actor? Yeah. I just... um I just finished working on Richard II this summer, and uh, he played this one role in... People say he played this one role in Richard II where uh, this person is sentenced to move to a country where he doesn't speak a language anymore. And he has this beautiful speech about uh, to to not be able to speak language anymore would be the worst thing you could do to someone. Um, So to write Hamlet that has some of the best best imagery and best arguments. Sure. Uh, that's, yeah, I, I can see where someone might make that jump. Um, as far as uh, the to get thee to a nunnery scene, like, we know this is just, it, there's a lot of confusion about, or not confusion, but, like, difference in productions on, you know, whether Polonius and Claudius are listening from the beginning, whether Hamlet knows they're listening from the beginning, and if he doesn't know from the beginning where he finds out in the scene... Like, is he feigning a bunch of madness to, to like, for their benefit? Or does he sc- discover that they're there halfway through? Um, I guess, what um, what are some successful ways that you've seen this done? Oh, gosh. Um, what are some successful ways that I've seen that scene done? I, I've heard people make good arguments for a lot of the different things that you've listed there. Mm-hmm. And it's really funny because I'll, I'll tell you, I had this shift in my head as I was kind of coming up as an actor and as a, a Shakespeare person. It seems like when you're first starting, everyone's about be specific, be specific, be specific. And um, and then I remember someone saying, well, where's the room for contradiction and complexity? And I got so pissed. <laughs> like, what? You're changing the rules. Uh, and I think that's why uh, there are 
so many books written about Hamlet is because it's got this built-in contradiction and complexity and and mystery around it. Now, that's not to say that as an actor you come in you're like, ah, mystery. Let's see what happens tonight. Right. Um, but that there's a lot of there's a lot of room within it and a lot of an engagement with it to get to something that is great. It doesn't kind of lay it all out for you. Cool. Well, we also, um, the, the, oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I speech, you know, one of Hamlet's more famous soliloquies. We have all these soliloquies that give us a lot of insight into, to Hamlet and, uh, you know, some exposition, but also some mm-hmm. personality traits, some, you know, inner goals, whatever. But, oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I seems to be a really big defining one and, and one where he makes yeah. a lot of decisions. Um, yeah, I, I guess what are some of the ways that you've looked at oh, what are, or what are your, some, some of your thoughts about the soliloquy? Well, my connection with that one, and I, I love that one because, um, <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, um, you know, there's that famous book, I can't remember what it is now, where uh, he's, he's always calling everybody a phony. What is it? Um, oh, it's the J.D. Salinger book where he's always calling everybody a phony. And I, I, I think that... Um, that's a little bit what Hamlet is going through, where um, he can't understand how people can be kind of two things and how there can be all this contradiction in the world. Um, and I think that's why there's so many images in the play of, of acting and pretending and play acting. And that's what I love about uh, Two Solid Flesh, um, yeah. is that it's like, how can you look this way and then also have this? And that he's pointing out that there are contradictions in people and nothing is at face value um that's what i love about that speech is it's kind of about acting you know it's it's funny you mention that because like as like as an actor who who does want to play hamlet someday i've looked at (laughs) hamlet in depth a lot and Mm -hmm. you know he has uh this line in the in the middle i can't I can't remember exactly the text, but he, he starts talking about, oh, this is most brave. Here, I must, like a horror, unpack my heart with words. And, yeah. and you notice in the play that already Hamlet's got two, two solid flesh and, and like three other soliloquies or long speeches that he's given to people, um, you know, during the course of the play. And he's talking a lot. I mean, Hamlet uh, some has something like 1,400 lines in this play, which is more than... I once that he has as many lines as as in the entirety of the Scottish play. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's pretty crazy. I knew it was close to the comedy of errors, but like, shoot. Yeah, he's a, he's a talkative one, you know? he, And it, obviously it's a character thing. It gives us insight into, you know, his personality and whatever. But also, at, at a certain point as a human being, when you're talking a lot, you realize that you're talking a lot. And I, yeah. I wonder if that's like a, a turning point in the in the middle of the play where he thinks back to how much he just talks about things and then decides to thrust himself into action and like what kind of epiphany that is for him as a character that he talks a lot. Well, I think he talks a lot because he gets it. He gets it more than other people around him. Um, one thing that for me um, I think is a turning point is just that line about um, let be in Act Five where he's he's seen that there's all these contradictions and he's seen that uh, the world is a complicated place and there's a sense where I'm just going to let it go. Um, so for me, it's not um, I'm done with talking more than like, okay, I, that's, 
I'm able to point out all these contradictions and I'm able to see things as they really are. Now am I able to accept things as they really are? Cool. Um, I mean, well, I mean, we've already talked about Hamlet a lot then, I guess, mm -hmm. but uh, to, to dig a little deeper into the analysis of the character um, mm -hmm. and his overall journey, like I, we were talking before we started recording about how there are so many different essays written on Hamlet that you could fill 10,000 libraries with them and oh, yeah. you know, people would be <laughs> sick of them after the first shelf. Um, but I guess what, um, what do you think is the most challenging uh, aspect of working with the character of Hamlet, like as an actor, like from an actor standpoint? Um, I think realizing I think going as in as an actor, you have to remember that nothing written on the page really comes to fruition until it meets you as a living, breathing human person. Um, so that it doesn't feel like Hamlet is some sacred jacket that you put on, but that you and Hamlet will meet and that it will be unique because you are unique. And that's the job of it. Um, it's not looking at all those books on the library and saying, yes, sacred books, I will honor you and I will, I will get everyone's interpretation in and I will, I will have, I will have spent time with every footnote. Um, that there's just so much, there's just so much weight around it, but it doesn't become an experience until it's you speaking it. You know, I heard an awesome analogy once, um, and they, maybe this is more common than I realized, but they, they were talking about the skeleton of Hamlet and how there is like a very specific skeleton of Hamlet because there's a lot of stuff that you have to take into account when you're creating the character. But ultimately, the reason it's done, been done so many different wildly successful ways is because of the muscles and flesh that so many talented actors have put around it. So, yeah, the fact that we're still doing it and people are yeah. still writing books about it is that it it continues to to hit us where we live as modern people, you know. And and I'm interested in different things in the play now than I was when I first read it. Um, so there's there's always more more to mine. Uh, and that should be a know, good thing instead of like a oh man, there's always more to mine on this thing. Right. <laughs> You know, speaking of more to mind, Claudius is also like one of the more complex characters I feel in the canon. Maybe that's my own personal opinion, but I know you and I have similar feelings about the word villain and how like maybe no character's really 100% a villain. And I know we've talked about Claudius in that respect before. So what uh -huh. do you what do you think? Is Claudius a villain? <laughs> is he a villain? You know, I think if you cut his speech where he's praying and grappling with forgiveness, then he's a villain. But if you keep that in there, I, I feel for the guy. I, I mm. Honestly, that's one of my favorite speeches, is that speech. Yeah, I uh, learned about it in college from a pretty cool teacher. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, and I know what you mean, because, you know, up through the whole play, you see him kind of, like, trying to take control of Hamlet or, or you know, keep things under wraps or keep things under his domain. Mm -hmm. um, and we know from the beginning, almost from the beginning, that he killed Hamlet's father. 
mm-hmm. um, but then when you you have this speech, you you see a how much he wanted the crown, mm-hmm. and b how how worried he is not not necessarily even feeling sorry for his brother, but just mm-hmm. the challenge of the or the fear of him going to hell, mm-hmm. you know, and and what that does to him and how that makes him vulnerable. And That's real. I mean, even when you look at people that people say, oh, clearly this guy's a Shakespearean villain. What a delicious villain. Richard III, his stuff with his mom, I feel sorry for him. Yep. Iago, his stuff with his wife uh, and his stuff with Othello, I feel sorry for him a little yep. bit. <laughs> I think Shakespeare is too good a writer to give us a pure villain. And you know yep. what? If you took Laertes aside and you say, who's the villain of this play? Laertes would say, Hamlet is the villain of this yep. play. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, well, on the opposite side of the coin, I guess, um, do you think Ophelia is a victim? Oh, you know what? I don't, I haven't met an actress who's comfortable with that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I, man, I get angry for the, for the way that the men in that play treat her, but I, I think you can't play Ophelia if you just think that she's a victim. Um. And it just makes her inactive. I just think it's not possible. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, so many bad things do happen around her. Mm-hmm. But it's also like nobody's intentionally hurting her either. So it's it's hard to... I mean, she's a victim of circumstance, but she's not like a victim of crime, if that makes sense. Yes. And the people who are victimizing her, I think, think they're doing it in a... Either she deserves it, or or I'm just trying to protect her type hmm. of way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So there's some there's some serious mistreatment around her. Well, now that we've she's talked, a one. she's definitely a tricky one. You know, I our our good friend uh, Susie, who played uh, played Ophelia <laughs> immediately after graduation at American Shakespeare Center, she always used to to do a lot of Ophelia material throughout, throughout school. And, and the way she, the, the way she did it was always, there was just so many big things around her that, mm-hmm. that were overwhelming. Uh, Jack Young used to talk about uh, the classic, like ingenue, everything in the world is happening to me. Like mm-hmm. everything is bigger than me and I don't quite know how to handle it. And I, I really, I genuinely always liked the way Susie did that. Wow, I must be an ingenue then. <laughs> I have a lot of ingenues then because uh, the world does feel like a big place that sometimes does things to me. Mm. Uh, but, you know, when she comes to her dad and she says Hamlet was acting strange, she's trying to be active. She's trying to fix things. She's trying to operate in the way she was told that the yeah. world operates. Um, and that's a pretty active thing. Yeah, definitely. You would, you would ask me what some of the traps are in this play, and I... I I think some of the traps are Ophelia is a victim and Hamlet is suicidal. And both of those things are just dead ends. They're dead ends. And it's really funny, too. I mean, speaking on the subject of ingenues, I love it. Like the first day of Shakespeare class, there's no lie. Every year there is one woman, if not more than one, who comes up to me and says, I want you to know that I really hate Juliet. It's like, okay. Okay, that's awesome. And it's because they have in their mind this picture of Juliet is a victim, which is some kind of cultural thing that that they've observed. But once they get inside of 
that story, they realized, oh, my God, Juliet is incredibly active and, and Ophelia has to find her ways to fight mm-hmm. for, for her big win. Well, and you know, it's funny. I think the, the way you, you put it before about how Ophelia sort of is like, this is the way the world works and this is what I have to do. This is what my duty is. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to look at Juliet as a contrast and think, well, this is what kind of my duty is, but this this is how I'm going to go against it to, to get what I want. And then we have on, like, even further on the spectrum, we have Rosalind, who's like, well, yeah, this is duty and whatever, but I'm going to do my own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting to see it as kind of like a spectrum now that you point that out. Yeah, but they're all... I- the thing that I think makes Shakespeare is a great a great writer is it's not one person fighting with some people around them. They're mm-hmm. plays in which everybody's got to fight. I, you know, people say Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are these sort of comical guys who are, are doing kind of a mean thing. But you know, check it. Go go talk to my son. Find out what's wrong with him. I really want to know. Does that make them evil that they're doing that? I mean. If I got a call saying, go, go talk to Kyle uh, and then let me know how he's doing, I would absolutely do it if I was concerned about you. So yeah. they, they each get their humanity, and that's what makes Shakespeare such a great writer. Well, now we've talked about the characters a little bit. Uh, we may as well talk about uh, auditioning for the play and using material from the play to audition for other mm-hmm. things. Uh, what, what do you sort of recommend that actors do in preparing for an audition for this play? Okay. Well, I will say that um, I haven't heard of very many Hamlet auditions for the role of Hamlet. I think if you are a young man or, you know, sometimes these days a woman and you're working at a classical theater, you're probably auditioning for the role of Hamlet without knowing it. Mm. (laughs) Because uh, a lot of... uh, I've heard the the prevailing wisdom is you don't cast a Hamlet, you grow a Hamlet. And I've heard the same thing for Romeo, and I've heard the same thing for Juliet. So if if you're a young uh, classical actor out there, you're you're auditioning for Hamlet, which I think also means that in your spare time you should be working on Hamlet. You should be you you should be working on the speeches that you someday want to play, even if you don't have that deadline of an audition coming up. Um, so yeah, <laughs> you know it's interesting because now that you think about, now that I think about it, nobody like anytime somebody's casting Hamlet, there's there's always you know a little sign there that says the role of Hamlet is cast, but we will be you know seeing people for potential understudies and mm-hmm. you know I mean I guess Hamlet's the kind of uh, character that you build a, a cast around mm-hmm. rather than than trying to seek out and, and mix with another group of people. Um, yeah, and I get it because it's a it's a it's a lot to put on someone who you don't know. Um, it, it's just a lot, and you 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 want to know far in advance, and uh, uh, you want to kind of have the skill set already at the ready. Cool. I have picked out a couple of quick um, monologues from the play. I just wanted to talk about uh, the monologue oh, that this two two solid flesh. Um, which we sort of touched on a little bit earlier, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's Hamlet's first big soliloquy. So, like, what uh-huh. do you look at when I, I guess you're you're looking at this this speech? Like, what does it say about Hamlet as a character, and how how does it fit in the context of the play? Well, 
I think that these soliloquies are so famous, and they're they're often very famous for their first lines. Mm. Uh, so so that they seem to sort of exist in space. <laughs> um, so if you're going to work on it, I would really cook that moment before for yourself and be really specific about where exactly you are in the play so you don't sort of play the action of to Hamlet, you know. Um, be really specific about how that thing starts. You know, and it's interesting because, if, I mean, it starts with an ekphonesis, right? And there, oh. there are... <laughs> right, one of one of our favorite words. Um, right. <laughs> but one of one of the things, and for those who are listening who aren't familiar with the term ekphonesis, that's when Shakespeare puts a big giant O. In it's the a very of the text. complicated word for a very simple sound. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's the the thing about it is, and I actually wanted to ask you this: does does it having an ekphonesis to begin a line make it a trochee, or can you make the next word more important than this giant? vowel release. I think it's emotion. awesome to make it uh, an I am because if it's a trochee, then you've sort of you spend it all. You spend mm. it all on that O and then you have to kind of restart the play. But I think it's like, oh, would you believe this guy? That it's more of a launch. And yeah, when yeah. Someone, when you look at someone like Hamlet who's extremely verbal, finding the places where he's simple or he doesn't have complicated words is amazing. It, it sets it a little in relief. So, you know, to be or not to be. I'm a complicated guy. I'm going to put it in simple terms. Or even, ugh, that this, what, too, too solid flesh. You get, when you start with an O, you give yourself a problem. I can't mm. quite put it into words yet. Uh, and the other thing about working on these soliloquies is that in a play that's about having to, like, put on a face or put on a disposition in a soliloquy to go, oh, I thought they'd never leave. Thank God we're alone. I can't wait to talk to you and, and tell you what I really feel. That that's another way to, to kind of launch yourself into these. You know, it's a, it's a good thing to talk about, like not spending it all on the first line and being able to have more to launch yourself into. Because there are, like if you look at the rest of this monologue, I've broken it down a little bit, and like there are a lot of trochies. So if you guys are doing this for a monologue, watch out for those. Lots of trochies in here, lots of elision. Too mm -hmm. like in a couple of, like there's two Alexandrians littered throughout here. Mm -hmm. um, and the next one for for females, uh, the the oh what a noble mind is here or throne, uh, Ophelia. One one of it's kind of short for an audition piece, uh -huh. but um, it it also comes at a very key moment in the play for Ophelia. So I was wondering what you think about this monologue and and you know how it's used in the play and if there are any traps involved with it. Um, I think the trap is to think of it as sort of a funeral speech. Um, uh, I, I like that it starts with the rug being pulled out from underneath her. Uh, sure. That it's another, you know, what the hell just happened? Um, uh, and I think an exciting shift in there is how long she talks about him and then when she shifts into her. Um, I think that can be mined. Yeah, because this is the, really the first time in the play, it seems like, when she's just talking about what has happened to her rather than talking about this is what's going on with Hamlet. And Yeah, and, and I really like in that speech the way the kind of list kind of gathers around itself. It mm. gathers and builds and kind of churns a little bit and then right into her. It, it feels kind of stark, that shift, and, 
and really dynamic. Some beautiful metaphors and simile in this too. That now that I'm looking at it, yeah, that suck yeah. the honey of his music vows, like sweet yeah. bells jangled out of tune and harsh. It just uh -huh. gives us a lot of insight into what what Ophelia, I guess, notices and loves about the world, or and how she compares it to to her love of of Hamlet. Yeah, and I also think why her and Hamlet would have made a great couple. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and when you have things like suck the honey of his music vows, when you have those, you know, looking at why why you can't just say, I listened to how great a talker he was, why it's got to rise into suck the, God, how do I put it, how do I put it, the honey of his what, of his, what were his vows like, music vows, yeah. you know, so it all becomes, how do I put it, how do I put it? Well, we have a couple of listener questions that I wanted to uh, to delve into. Um, and the first one is from uh, Nick Scuddy, um, at Nick Scuddy on Twitter. Uh, he says, I guess my question would be, in your opinion, is the to be or not to be soliloquy necessary in the show? In other words, could you take it out and have the story and Hamlet's development as a character still make sense? Okay. Do you know this? Do you know this game called? Um, I think it's called Jenga, and it's like a tower, and you try to take little bricks out, and it, and you, the person loses when they take the brick out that makes the whole thing fall down. Mm -hmm. And I think that cutting Shakespeare is a little bit like that. That's amazing. Yeah, because you know, they're great plays, and if you cut something, it always costs you something. And you don't often know until you're looking at the entire piece all together. So if you're going to go about cutting Shakespeare, make sure you know, as you put it, Kyle, make sure you know the, the skeleton of that play. And I have to say, personally, if I went to go see Hamlet and they cut that speech, I'd feel a little robbed. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, it's funny, the, the Houston Shakespeare Festival, when they did it a couple years ago, they, you know, they have a very very strict time limit, obviously, because there's a, a noise curfew or something around like 11 p.m. during the summer. Right. And, you know, they, they have to start at 8, I guess, um, and mm -hmm. they have to have an intermission. Mm -hmm. So their their issue was they, they had to choose between two things, and eventually they had to cut the speech to the players uh -huh. because it was just one of those things that they felt like the play could do without. But it's also, you don't think about it um, as, an, as an actor, but when these... Um, when the dramaturgs are, are cutting things, you're taking moments out that they aim either me may, maybe secretly referenced later, or maybe an actor co emotionally connects to later. And it's mm -hmm. you you are taking out a foundation for something, and it's, it's yeah. An and you know what about. what voice and speech people usually say is what they'll cut is the poetry, and what they'll leave is the plot. And you know what Shakespeare was famous for? Yeah. People Famous for his plots, he stole his plots. Go see Thomas Kidd version of Hamlet if you don't want the poetry of it. Um, but, you know, I get it. You have to cut something. And, you know, I've been hired to help people before to make cuts. And any cut you make creates it into the story that, that you want to tell or your version of the story, right? It, 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 it reflects a viewpoint that you have of, of the shape of the whole thing. So... One person's cut is not going to work for somebody else. Um, and it's uh, it's partially about actors saying, I need that to have this little piece in there. 
Um, but it's really about the larger story and how words get bounced around through plays. Uh, and it is one one thing I did want to bring up about to be or not to be is that there is argument, I guess, between the the first and second quarto and the folio about where it goes in the play. So mm-hmm. some productions have it like 430 lines before we're used to seeing it. And then uh-huh. there was a production, I, I guess, that was pretty successful. I can't remember exactly where and when, but it was famous for taking all, how, all, how All Occasions Do Inform Against Me out mm-hmm. and replacing that with To Be or Not To Be, which I thought was interesting just because it's kind of a penultimate thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I love I love doing all of that stuff because it feels like a really fun kind of like Sudoku exercise in my head. Like, yeah. you know, when I did As You Like It, I put The Seven Ages of Man as a prologue. And clearly that's not what Shakespeare intended. I, I think when you're going to get into that, just know that that's what you're doing. And, you know, if you want to create a three-person version of Hamlet that takes 30 minutes, maybe you want to call it something different, you know? Right. Because at some point it's it's not the full thing anymore. Uh, people often cut the larger political framework of Hamlet, and I think that's important. I think that's an important piece. Um, yeah, it's you know, all it's, good, and if you decide something is less good, then then know that that's your point of view, and you're, you're kind of putting a different frame around it. It's interesting how you mentioned, like, cutting things and moving them around. Like, we do that, and while it does sort of change the order of events like the the seven ages of man speech for example is mm-hmm. largely i mean it's it's part of the plot of a play but it's it's largely its own thing as well and and something mm-hmm. that shakespeare was saying and something that a, that a character was expressing so why when you when you take that out and for example make it a prologue it it does something interesting for the play that that puts that brings the audience into the production on a different note and that's yep it's just, just different a- yeah. <laughs> it's just different. Yep. Um, another question from Lisa Coughlin uh, on Twitter. It says, did Hamlet feigning madness cause his madness? Self-fulfilling prophecy or was it the other way around? Um, and I don't I don't really know how to get into this question mm-hmm. because the, the, the real underlying question here seems to be, is Hamlet ever really mad in the first place? And how do you define madness? Mm-hmm. You know, like, has anybody ever asked you that? Like, is Hamlet, what do you think, is Hamlet crazy? Is Hamlet mad throughout the play, and where does that happen? I don't know. You know, when I think about that, I think about when you hear these stories of people going into uh, movie theaters and shooting people, and they're like, oh, it was a crazy person. Well, yes. You know, at the end when there's that big sword fight, is he crazy? Yeah, he, he killed someone that was hiding in a room that was random. Um, you know, Calling something crazy or madness, I think, is just a way to sort of, like, put it aside and put it at a distance. Yeah, yeah. Not really examine it. So uh, I think if you're going to say, oh, he's crazy, just make sure that you're still doing your good sort of human work as an actor in this thing. Um, I would say if you're going to go down that road... um, Don't let Hamlet think think he's crazy, too, or you're just going to... You're gonna do the Looney Tunes version of the whole thing. Well, yeah, and like like you said, you're putting it at a distance. And, and the, the thing about Hamlet that's remarkable is that you have to look so deeply into him to examine him as a character that by by saying he's mad, you're automatically discounting some of the things he does. And as an actor, you can't discount anything a character does. You have to use. Yeah, it I can give you. I can give you twelve people just off the top of my head in in Shakespeare plays that we could just say, oh, he's crazy. 
Oh, he's crazy. They're they're just extreme, and there there are extreme things going on. Um, so, yeah, I think maybe, maybe. But I, if you were to ask Hamlet in that production, I would hope he wouldn't say that. Oh, I'm just crazy now. So I guess the answer we have to that question is th- there's maybe Hamlet is feigning madness for a cer- for certain purpose, but neither of us really believe that it causes him to go. To really, Mad. really, yes. snap. you know, I, I think that thing about um, the fall of a sparrow, that seems really clear to me. Mm, yeah. The stuff in the, with the gravedigger, that seems really clear to me, really clean and really on point. Well, and, yeah, that's another thing. You're, you're right. Hamlet is always breaking everything down and, and analyzing it and, and trying to look at the world in a way that maybe not every human being looks at the world and that the, yeah. the whole grave digger scene and alas poor york like seeing his friend and in examining you know the famously examining the skull or whatever and, and looking at it for what it is and being like this is you know this was a person and and analyzing it in that way that it doesn't seem like a character who's lost his marbles no um, and he acts differently with different people um ampersand you know? artists theater Mm-hmm. asks us, uh, how can we make sense, any sense of Ophelia's mad scene? So I guess while we were on the subject of being mad, somebody else asked a similar question. And uh, But we know the scene that, that they're talking about, right? You know, the, this, mm-hmm. where she comes in and giving she's singing. Away. And, yeah, I guess, how can we make sense of that? What has happened to Ophelia to that point? That What has happened? Yeah. I mean, we we know what happened. I guess what I'm what I'm asking is how can we make sense? How how can an actor in particular make sense of what's going through her at that moment? You know, my friend Leah Kearney played it at the Guthrie, and she had this beautiful idea. And I I I saw her, I saw that production. It was gorgeous. That when she was giving away the different flowers, she said it reminds me of when people. Uh, commit suicide and they start giving away their things to everybody they're like you should have my car and you should have my keys and hmm. and so she walked around and she was giving things away to people and it wasn't flowers you know she handed someone her hairbrush and she's like here's this flower and i could tell that that made a sense to ophelia that the people around her thought wow that doesn't make sense to me that there was a that's that's how the madness read to me um, that Ophelia was still struggling and working through something that just looked like madness to everybody else. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, how do we make sense of Ophelia's madness as an actor uh, with extreme attention to detail? Yep. Cool. Um, we also have uh, from Robert H. Robert H. asks kind of a fun question. If Hamlet were a personality disorder, aside from depression... What would it be and why? And to have a little fun with this, I've pulled up a list of personality disorders. So I'm just going to go through them real quick because we're running out of time. Can you imagine if you were the psychologist and you were sent in to analyze Hamlet and he's waiting in your office? Like you, (laughs) you should have studied up. You should be ready because he will, he will make mincemeat out of you. He will see it coming. He'll, he'll know everything you're up to. (laughs) <laughs> I can I just can, can imagine like the political cartoon now like Freud walking out of the office with like his his brain short circuiting and like questioning his life and all of a sudden yeah yeah um so we have antisocial nah not so sure about that one oh he loves seeing his friends 
Um, yeah. Avoidant. Yeah, it doesn't really avoid much <laughs> in, in this play. Uh, uh -huh. Dependent. Not, I mean, there's some things with, like, you know, his, his mother a little bit, but I don't, I wouldn't classify him as dependent. What do you think? No, uh, I don't think so. Histrionic. Oh, yeah, yeah. He likes to make a scene. Yeah, a little bit. Um, <laughs> multiple personality disorder. Ah. He's able to play different roles with people. That's true. There we go. Um, I don't think I don't think he loses himself in those roles though. So he's probably not strictly that. We have narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, I I would have a hard time making a case for that one. Mm. Um, obsessive compulsive. What do you think? I, I I'm trying to think of any moment in the play where he he has to get something specifically right. He just sort of goes goes at something like full tilt with with grit and I don't know I don't think he's worried about neat and and tidiness and and you know washing his hands seven times or whatever I don't yeah. have a case for it. No, what I think he sees that the world is complex. So uh, I I feel like obsessive compulsive is no the world makes sense. If yes, I touch this thing seven times before I leave. So. Yeah, yeah, it's simplifying it. Um, yeah. Paranoid. Paranoid? Oh, you know, I love it that he says, I'm not sure if this ghost that I've seen is the devil or a real thing. And if you were paranoid, I think he would fully, fully believe it was the real thing. Yeah, you're right. Um, I mean, he is like, uh, when he says, swear, swear, no, seriously, you guys, promise. Uh, he's a little paranoid about uh, those guys on the watch, um, you know, letting all his secrets out. The last one on the list is schizoid personality disorder, which I'd never heard of until just now. Apparently, it means a long-standing pattern of detachment from social relationships. No. No. So, I guess our answer is um, histrionic? Was that it? Was that the one that we were like, oh, I guess that's... Well, I mean, he's got a sense of the theatrical. Yep. There we go. But he's so able to drop it. He's in command of it, so... But we were talking about, oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I, and... You know, I mean, seeing my, my classmate Crash Buis do that monologue a number of times, there there were moments where he unlocked something pretty histrionic. Because Crash is a pretty like intense guy. He's he's got a lot of heart to him, and uh -huh. him doing this monologue definitely has some histrionic um, quality to it. So let's just hey, so the the answer is histrionic personality disorder. That's what we came up with. Yikes. <laughs> um, <laughs> And the very last one, um, since we run out of time, is sort of one that caught me off guard. Uh, Aaron Deward, or Deward, sorry if I mispronounced your name, Aaron, on Twitter, says, I, uh, I have been told that they say the owl was a baker's daughter, refers to Ophelia's belief that she is pregnant. Thoughts? Um, and just, I, I did a little introductory research to this question before the show, because I had no idea. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it does appear to be um, and a reference to a folktale in which... Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Jesus comes and asks a baker's daughter for bread and she denies him. And so he turns her into an owl, which the obviously is the folktale and not the Bible. Cause that doesn't really sound like something Jesus would do. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, some, some scholars have tried hard to examine it and, and, uh, Philip Edwards, who works for the Arden, um, says, yeah, well, she's making a reference to something that's transformative. And this is a point in the play where she has emotionally transformed from somebody who has been happy with Hamlet to somebody who's all of a sudden, like, wrecked. 
Um, mm-hmm. Harold Jenkins of New Cambridge Shakespeare says makes a reference to to virginity um, mm-hmm. as as though like and I, I'm not exactly sure what it means, but I assume it's something along the lines of she has been transformed from one thing into another because she's lost her virginity. Uh-huh. Um, and G.R. Hibbert of Oxford Shakespeare quotes something completely different uh, about a reference to Baker's daughters and other such poor whores. So uh-huh. I, 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 I'd have a hard time finding anything about being pregnant unless she, she does say like, Lord knows we know not, we know what we are, but we know not what we may be. I don't uh-huh. know. So w- what do you think? Uh, I think people have done it successfully either way. Um, sometimes people say, is she pregnant? And sometimes people just go, have they slept together? Um, my gut instinct, my gut at, th- at this point, and I could easily be swayed, is that they haven't had sex because I think Hamlet is so turned off by the sexuality of his mom. And usually in these plays, characters have opposites. And so if Gertrude is kind of all hot and sexy, then my gut instinct is that Ophelia is in there to provide the counter to that. Um, but, you know, there, there's an old theater joke where there was a talk back and, and someone in the audience said, have Hamlet and Ophelia slept together? And this old actor in the cast said, yeah, during tech week. <laughs> <laughs> I love that joke. So who knows? You know, I, I think that's that's a it's a big play, and uh, um, I, I'm willing to entertain the idea uh, that uh, both have worked. Yeah, and that's that's another thing we have to say is that you know, with however many hundreds of productions of Hamlet open every year, we mm-hmm. we can't say any one definitive thing about it. It's more about the the individual dramaturgs and the actors and the directors of the the performance, but. Yeah. This is just us talking about our gut instincts. So. Yeah, and you know what? I do think that there are certain things in this play that don't work. You know, I think there's mm-hmm. some things that you, uh, not in the writing of it, but I think there are some things you can do to Hamlet to take it so far from Hamlet that it's not Hamlet anymore. But yeah. I, I don't think that this is one of them. I well, think this is something that each production kind of has to answer for itself. So there you have it. Go go do Hamlet. Go find a way to answer each individual question you have for yourself and, and make it your own. And keep uh, doing it, you know? Over and over again until the day you die. Play <laughs> play Hamlet when you're long, young, play Claudius when you're middle-aged, and play Polonius when you're old. And then and write a book about it. Ophelia when you're young and Gertrude add when you're older. library. Yes, add your, add your little opinion to the, the giant library of Hamlet text. Because, you know what, why don't we need another one? We could always yeah. use another one. Well, Kyle, I'm so glad that we have solved all the mysteries of the play of Hamlet and just ironed out all its complexities, and now no one needs to read any other books about Hamlet. <laughs> You're welcome, world. We solved it. Um, I want to thank you again, Sarah, for, for coming on and, and, you know, talking about Hamlet with me. And um, I just want to let everybody know if you... Uh, if you want more free tips, hints, and material suggestions from all 37 of Shakespeare's plays, you can find me on Twitter at NYShakesGuy, Instagram at NYShakesGuy, Facebook NYShakesGuy, or you can subscribe to my YouTube channel, Kyle Downing, parentheses, NYShakesGuy. Um, thanks for listening, and keep up the hard work on your bard work. And we're good. <laughs> That was more than 15 minutes, right? Yes, that was... I'm going to carry... I'm so sorry. I'm...
That's okay. No, I'm fine. I'm open all day. I just don't know if you're going to, are you going to trim it or are you going to keep the whole thing? Oh, no. I mean, I'll, I'll keep it. I'll absolutely keep the whole thing. I, you know, when when you get in, I don't know. There was, what would I cut out, you know? I mean, what, what Jenga block would I be able to pull without making the whole thing topple all at once? <laughs> 